Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a show that looks at the way technology, politics, and policy impacts the world around us, the tools we use, the way services are delivered, and how we talk about and set policy all shape our society. We'll gather around and have a chat about these things together and more. Before we get started, I do want to let you all know that we've started a Discord for the podcast. There will be a link with an invite down in the episode description. Do feel free to go check that out. It's a small community right now, but hoping to grow it. It's a great way to reach out to me and let me know things that you might want us to cover or to just hang out and talk about civic tech. Anyway, let's go ahead and start the show. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us here on Civic Tech Chat. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do? Sure. Uh, Ryan, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I'm Jeremy Hartman, and I lead the Venture Forward Initiative for GoDaddy. What would you say is your personal why, the thing that drives you to get out of bed each morning and do what you do? I really enjoy doing two things, um, Ryan. One is to create an understanding. So much in our world today that is new um, or that is horribly complicated. Um, And I don't believe anybody likes to permanently live in a world where things are complicated or hard to understand. So to be able to create some understanding of the world around us is something um, that I'm passionate about. And secondly, I love to build organizations. I love to tap into what people's superpower is and bring that out into a common shared goal with organizations. So if I can do that every day, I love that. And that has a lot to do, frankly, with why I love my work is because with Venture Forward and at GoDaddy, we're studying and looking at and measuring the impact of these incredible entrepreneurs in our country um, that are having such an amazing impact on our economy. And every day they're starting something new, they're thinking differently. Um, and to be able to work with them is is that in and of itself get me out of bed every day. Are there any videos, books, podcasts, or other media that you'd recommend to the folks out there listening to us today? I'm so glad. I'm so glad you sent me this question in advance so I could be prepared because I just fumbled this one horribly because there's so many, I'm a, I love, I'm a ferocious consumer of information, particularly from people who can't explain a period of time or a situation in just amazing terms. It's a gift to be able to do that. And I came across this book a few months ago called The Accidental President um, by A.J. Bain. Sorry, A.J., if I just pronounced your last name wrong. But it's about President Truman and his first four months in office. And here is a guy who was senator and, and horribly uninformed about what was happening with the presidency. And as his first four months, he dealt with the surrender of Germany, the surrender of Japan, the testing, the successful testing of the nuclear weapon, the dropping of the nuclear weapon, the creation of the United Nations, Potsdam Conference, extreme starvation in Europe. This is a guy who had no practical experience or informed view of what was actually happening in the world as president. And he came in and dealt with all these situations with flying colors. Um, and AJ does a masterful job of talking about someone who had to deal with an amazing amount of change around him. And I think it was just so applicable to our world today of how a lot of us feel, frankly, of so much change happening and trying to understand it, make sense of it, and be successful within it. It, it sounds like that one in particular is something... Uh, that you consume to kind of maybe to take lessons into how you try to operate in the current day. Is that, am I hearing that? Yeah, I I hope I took lessons. At at minimum, I was very inspired, (laughs) but I hope I took lessons from it. We'll see how, we'll see how applicable they are. I don't think I'm I'm solving, uh, I don't think I'm trying to solve the end of World War II in my job, but sometimes it does feel very challenging. All right. So today we've uh, gotten together to talk about this thing called micro-businesses, for folks that are out there that maybe maybe they're hearing the term for the first time, uh, what do we mean by when we say micro business? Um, so um, <clears throat> it's a great question, and the way um, I'll start um, talking about what a micro business is first give a definition of how we typically think of a small business, and we typically think of a small business as being a business that's anywhere from ten to two hundred and fifty people, and if anyone who has worked inside a business before they know there's a really big difference between being 10 people versus being 250 people. Um, Micro businesses, uh, the ones that we're tracking in the US, 94% of them have less than 10 employees. And 
what's really amazing about these micro businesses, and there are over 40 million of them in the US today, is that to a large extent, our ability to see these micro businesses, like we see small businesses in, in economic data or in a census view, is just not happening because these businesses are too small or too new to really be seen. So not only do 94% of them have less than 10 employees and, and about half of them are solopreneurs, but um, one in four make over $4,000 per month. And 31% were created in 2020 or later. So these businesses are new, they are young, and we're, the more and more that we see and study them, they are incredibly ambitious, particularly after COVID. They're drawing um, entrepreneurs into our economy that if you look at our history as a workforce in this country, we've had a hard time assimilating certain, uh, certain demographics into our workforce. And we have people who have been on the outside looking into our economy, now able to participate it from a micro business point of view. Um, these micro businesses in some cases do provide all the income in a household, but in many, many cases, they're also supplementary income, really important supplementary income, by the way. This could be anywhere from a hundred bucks a month to a thousand bucks a month who are helping parents pay for college or save up for a trip, a family trip, or just to put food on the table in a better way than they could before. So micro businesses are very different than small businesses. And if I were to ask any of your listeners to take away one thing when it came to micro businesses is that they are small, but much more importantly, they're really different than how we understand small businesses, which is why we need to treat them very differently. I noticed you citing some statistics there. Uh, something that y'all have been doing at your organization is collecting data about micro businesses, whether we're talking about survey results, whether we're talking about trying to map out where they are and what kinds of activities are going on uh, or kind of related bits of data. Why are y'all interested in studying this? this? Um, well, this, this venture forward is part um, is an initiative that comes from the company GoDaddy. Um, um, and we work with, um, we have 20 million customers around the world who are entrepreneurs. And we care so passionately about our customers that we thought it was important um, in a very obvious sense to get to know them better, particularly what their economic impact was, because we felt that they were wholly different than how we looked at a, lo a lot of other parts of the economy and not just to better understand how to service them better, but also to make sure that other parts of our country were seeing them as well, other parts of the world, whether it be policymakers or academics or influencers, that we were studying them and trying to understand them just like we would other parts of our economy. Um, we started this work in 2019, and it took us about a year and a half. If any, if any of your listeners are, are really into data science or hardcore data scientists, they'll understand um, this when I say it. it took us a year and a half just to get the data right. Um, we needed to find data that obviously protected the identities of all of our customers and nothing that is available anywhere publicly from venture forward uh, in any way betrays the confidence, the information that our customers have and that we have of their information, but also allows us to see with great accuracy um, where these businesses are all the way down to a zip code level and what kind of impact they're having and be able to update that information monthly. It took us a year and a half to figure out how to do that with 20 million of the micro businesses that we serve in the U.S., it took us, as I said, took us a year and a half to do that. And suddenly we're in, we're in 2020 and uh, suddenly COVID hits. And up until COVID, we'd sort of been asking ourselves, like, what's the real power of this data going to be? Who's, who's going to find it useful? We knew as a company it would be useful because we'd simply understand them better. We'd understand where they are and what their migration patterns may be around the country. If, if one state changes laws, tax laws, or... Um, or new broadband policy, would that shift where micro-businesses might want to be in the country? And we'd be able to see those sort of patterns. We'd be able to see, we'd be able to see what kind of impact micro-businesses have on economies. We know they raise income levels across the community. We know that they create more wage jobs. Uh, we know that they lower unemployment, particularly they lower unemployment amongst the low-income unemployed. Um, part of our economy. Um, but we didn't know who would be, um, the, quote unquote, the buyer of this information. We give it away for free, but we didn't know who'd be most interested in this information. 
and what they would use it for. Um, and then when COVID hit, it became really clear who was going to use this information. And that was cities. Um, cities all over the country, I'm sure we all felt it in our own cities. You would walk down the streets and see businesses closed. Um, you'd see businesses having to change their business model overnight from maybe being a restaurant that served people in person to only offer takeout. Um, or a chef who no longer had a job at the restaurant, but then turned to do online courses through Zoom. Um, stories of like that, we all have dozens of them. But our data was able to show a picture of this, a view into this that you couldn't get anywhere else. And so COVID was horrible for all sorts of reasons, but it really shined a light on how important this data was for policymakers to understand what was happening in their communities. And then also, how do they actually need to support it? Uh, many of the policymakers that reached out to us city on a city by city basis, it would if it was an hour long call, we'd spend 45 minutes on the call just giving them insight into what was happening with their micro business community and economy. The last 15 minutes would be like, well, what what can I do to help them? Um, in the two years or so since we've been sharing this data through COVID, that percentage of time has flipped. We're now more and more cities and policymakers are understanding who these micro businesses are simply because the, their economy and their communities have been so impacted by them that now we're spending the most of our time talking about well, how, do, how do we actually support them. So it's been in a very hard time. Um, it's been very rewarding to be able to help um, city officials and, and, and business advocates and economic development, development folks um, give them some data and some insights they didn't have otherwise to really pay attention to how the economy is shifting underneath all of our feet. It's, it sounds like there's been a lot of focus on folks at the city level and how, they, how they've used this. Uh, in those situations where they've managed to make use of it successfully, uh, what have they managed to, to get out of that experience? Well, the, the one of the first instances that we had, this was so, boy, this was like in the first few months of COVID, um, city called Denison, Texas. Um, a small community, I think about 60, if I remember correctly, about 60 miles north of Dallas. And um, unsolicited, we got a, a press release from the head of, I think his title was head of economic development there. Just unsolicited out of the blue in our inbox was a press release. And he sent it to us because he found us off of our Venture Forward website. And he said, thought you might want to see this. And in it, it was a press release um, saying that the town had used our data to create a business case to spend money on basically consultants to get their small businesses downtown up and online because these were brick and mortar businesses that did not have a website to be able to do transactions or sell or market their goods and this town made a business case to i think to get i can't remember the amount um uh, but it was a it was a five-figure amount um for a very small town to get those businesses up and online. And uh, we work with far bigger communities on, on and help support far bigger projects. But that was probably the most rewarding because one, it was unsolicited. And two, it was just this incredibly entrepreneurial economic development director in a relatively small town outside the huge town of Dallas, who just took it upon himself to do something in the very early stages of COVID and get I think it was the hundred businesses and in and along Main Street and get them up and online. It was awesome. As we're talking about folks that are starting these micro businesses and thinking about the data y'all have collected so far, uh, have you found reasons why folks tend to hop into these? Like, why why do folks want to start these enterprises? I think the reasons are tremendously varied. I think sometimes we like to be monolithic and why they do it, um, but I I because these businesses are so personal the entrepreneurs that start them, I think all the reasons really come down to personal reasons. And we call these entrepreneurs everyday entrepreneurs. We, we, we think about them and we classify them in our own head at GoDaddy is differently because an entrepreneur could be the person on Inc. Magazine or it could be Elon Musk or could be the person who secures VC funding. Those are the entrepreneurs that we're serving. And we call them the everyday entrepreneurs because they're all around us. I mean, Ryan, in some ways, you're one because you started this podcast, right? There are people who have an idea, they have a dream, they have a hobby, and, and they want to try and turn it into a business. I mean, it's really that simple. And at GoDaddy, uh, because of what we sell, we're able to see what is generally the very first step 
that these everyday entrepreneurs take in their business, and that is to get a domain. Um, cupcakes.com, for example. And they say, I want to think I want to, I'm great at making cupcakes. I want to sell them. Um, there was a, that my first day on the job, or my, my second day on the job, I flew down and I sat down. We call them guides, and they're folks who are on the calls with our customers every day. And about two thirds of the GoDaddy workforce are guides. And I was able to um, hotwire into his calls and listen to a call he was having with a woman in Omaha, Nebraska. And she was a, she described herself as being a homemaker. Um, and she uh, really loved making candles and she had for most of her life. She was telling all this to the guy, by the way. It wasn't like we had this in our files on her. And she loved making candles and her sons were, were getting to the end of their high school career. And she thought, maybe I could sell a few candles. Um, and she was trying to figure out she was so passionate about the candles, but she had no idea about how to go about creating um, a website in order to sell them. So she was on the phone with us trying to figure out how that thing that you and I might know is the URL at the top of the screen matched the images that were on her screen and how they controlled each other. Um, it was an amazing conversation because she was so terribly passionate about her candles and wanting to sell them to people who love them as well. She wanted to do that to make some extra money, not to become quote unquote, unemployed, not to quote unquote, join the workforce, but because she loved making candles and sharing that love with a community who might enjoy it as well. And the words she used to describe her business um, was so different than what you'd hear from sort of any other business person. And there are just millions and millions of people like her. My second call that day was with two gentlemen from, um, I think it was Alabama, it was Alabama or Georgia, I can't remember which, and they had, uh, they were brothers and they had two pickup trucks that they weren't using as much as they thought. And they wanted to create a business to rent them out. Um, and I don't know how much money they expected to make, but it clearly wasn't a business that was gonna change their fortunes um, overnight, but it was still a business and they were still being entrepreneurs. And it's that kind of spirit um, that people take very personally and comes out in very personal ways that is the root of, of all GoDaddy customers. This, the stories are remarkable. I mean, to, to really hear someone who's able to take a passion of theirs and not only do that, but find the tools and the ability to like take the inherent risk of putting oneself out there to try to offer that service. That's, that's pretty remarkable. Like as folks do that, like what kind of impact do they then kind of end up having as they get out in their communities offering these, whether they're passion projects or, or otherwise? Well, it, so I'll give you, there's two ways to think about it. Well, actually give you three ways to think about impact. I mean, one is just on the economy in general. And um, again, I'll, I'll plug our website um, at Venture Forward, but there are the economic impact of microbusiness on this country is tremendous. It offers a level, we, we've looked at the impact of microbusinesses going all the way back to the 2008 um, recession that we had. And those communities, even back then, that had a greater density of micro-businesses, you know, all things being equal, population, education, um, employment, et cetera, all things being equal, those communities that had a higher percentage of active micro-businesses did better in terms of getting through the recession faster than those that didn't. When we took a look at what was happening during COVID and the depths of the COVID economy, those communities that had a higher percentage or greater density of micro-businesses, um, the unemployment amongst the low-income population, that population which was being hit the hardest, was significantly less. It was heavily mitigated than not. Um, we did not see that in areas that had high densities of small businesses. We did see it in areas with high densities of micro-businesses. So micro-businesses, they can start quickly they, um, they are inexpensive to start um, because generally they're started online. You immediately have a marketplace that is the world, whereas a lot of small businesses are started from a brick and mortar perspective and their marketplace might be three square miles around them. Um, and so there's all sorts of things that can happen with a micro business that doesn't happen with a traditional small business. We've also seen that when you start a micro business and you're online, that your ability to get mentorship or community support happens so easily where if you start a small business and you're in a community that's not doing very well, you may walk outside of your shop and look to your left and your right and you're having people in the same, same boat you're in, which sometimes might not be a very great boat. 
um, and they might not be able to help you as opposed to being able to easily click a world away um, or a couple of states away to find someone who might be in a different situation and help you and yours. Um, so the economic impact um, is significant. Um, the personal impact is tremendous as well. We have some of our favorite customers that are just highlighted in our latest ad campaign, um, the, the Cupcake Sisters. They started um, an organization called Furlough, or not Cupcake, Cheesecake Sisters. They started an a company called Furlough Cheesecake. And during the, um, I forgot the what year this was, it was, um, I think in the early 2010s that the, the government um, went through a period where they were furloughing government workers. Um, and these two sisters based just outside DC decided um, while they were on furlough, they needed to make some income. They're really good at making cheesecakes. They decided to try and make some money selling cheesecakes. They started a website. We took notice of them very early on. A wonderful, wonderful entrepreneurs, wonderful to talk to, super inspiring. Well, from just selling a couple dozen cheesecakes every week. Now they have a brick and mortar store that's opened up. I believe it's in Maryland. Um, they have a thriving online business. They have distribution deals with Walmart. Um, they're just a force to be reckoned with. And from a personal experience, I look at what happened with them and with their families. It's pretty remarkable what they're able to do when they took their careers into their own hands. I'd say the third area Ryan, when, you see, when you talk about impact is just how inspirational this is, I think, for everybody to see it. Um, back to the top of, of the, our conversation, there's so much change happening in the world. There's so much you can feel out of our control. When you get on the phone or on Zoom or in person with an everyday entrepreneur, they are taking that portion of the world that they can control and they're bringing it within their control. and They're doing something amazing with it. And it's just so inspiring. All right. So this is maybe slightly off topic, but... Long, long time listeners probably know that I'm, I'm in Maryland here and uh, cheesecake is like one of my favorite things. So I'm thinking I may have to go find this. Uh, yeah. I was going to ask, like, have you, have you had a, have you ever had occasion to get to try one of their, uh, their cheesecakes? I have. Absolutely. I, um, we, I first started working with them or I first heard about them right after I started and we wanted to do a, a customer profile for some early venture forward work. And I reached out to them. And, and so I formed a bit of relationship with them early on and I ordered cheesecake and it was excellent. That's sounding like a recommendation. Uh, high recommendation. If even if you aren't a fan of cheesecake, go meet them. They will they will light your world up. They're amazing. And hearing stories about folks like that, uh, something that occurs to me, particularly the story you told about, uh, I think it was the person with the candles when they were yeah. kind of trying to figure out, like, oh, like how does a URL become a thing that you know people look at on the screen and it becomes something that interacts with, you know, getting getting their candles. Something that occurs to me about that is using tools like the ones y'all provide allows so someone who's maybe an individual to kind of automate or handle a lot of things around them that then allow them to focus on like the actual thing they care about, which in this case is making candles or, uh, right. for, you know, maybe cheesecake. What kind of um, role have you seen from that dynamic as y'all have seen folks kind of creating these businesses and trying to wrestle with that? What kind of role have I seen from some of the dynamic again? Oh, sorry, the like impact of these sort of like web tools that kind of automate things that maybe would be otherwise <clears throat> manual to have to deal with as someone starting a business. I don't know if I've met um, any of our uh, everyday entrepreneurs where they think technology first. And that's one of the, the hardest things about the GoDaddy business and serving them is they don't think about technology. They don't want to think about technology. They want to think about the amazing product or service they're creating they want to serve their customers and everything else is second order priority. And so at GoDaddy, we like to think that the websites we're helping people build, the amazing commerce tools that we have, the arrays in which they can personalize their content on the brand or the center of their business and in many ways that they are. Um, but our customers really would just love that technology to work as simply and as powerfully as possible without them putting a lot of time into it. Um, in terms of the um, automation, I don't know if if automation. Um, I'm not sure it's anywhere on the radar screen of our of our customers. Um, maybe it is if if they get a whole lot bigger, but right now, get on some of those calls with our guys and our customers, and a lot of them are just trying to make sure I, I just need the right number of email boxes. I want I want some security layers on my website that 
will stop me from getting hacked. I want to be able to sell my products on 10 different marketplaces, but only have one control center by which to control it. Um, I want to create a brand that's beautiful, but I don't know how to do Photoshop. How do I do that? These are the the hard questions um, that they're asking themselves and really looking for someone like GoDaddy to help them out with. And it sounds like there is potentially a significant energy one could spend in trying to help out folks that are attempting to learn these these ecosystems. Um, how, how, how does that often pan out for folks that are, maybe they're just getting started and they have like uh, no idea, for example, like what a URL is. Uh, what's that like learning curve end up being like? Yeah. Well, everybody, um, I think with every generation, and when I, I can look at, we all have we all have stories. We all have stories of of helping our parents. If you're of a certain age, helping our parents get online. We all have stories. If you're of a certain age of, of a generation or two below us being able to work a piece of technology that that seems completely foreign to us. Um, I think we all adopt and embrace technology in our own way and in our own time, um, depending on a lot of factors. And that's true with all the everyday entrepreneurs that get to come in contact with. Um, for some, it, it happens really naturally. And for some, it doesn't. Uh, for some, they get um, they get blocked at certain areas of, of it than it does for others. I think what we've learned at GoDaddy is try and make it as accessible as possible and allow people to go at their own speed. Um, that's the best thing we can possibly do. You know, it's, it's, uh, we just started this out campaign that is really, it was really inspiring to see for me. And I've been at the company now for four years, but it talks about all the firsts, all the firsts that uh, everyday entrepreneurs go with. You have your first sale, you have your first customer in a place you never heard of before. Maybe you have your first $1,000 day or $1,000 a month. Small business people have a lot of firsts and at GoDaddy, we're trying to create technology and tools that help our customers deal with all those firsts. And they're all going to happen at different times in different ways and different levels of importance to our customers. And um, we're trying to hit them all. As uh, states and local communities are maybe noticing an uptick in activity in this space, in your view, what should they be seeking to do to try to support these sorts of constituents? One of the first cities that we got in front of was was Gilbert, Arizona. And this was before COVID. This was, I think, three months before COVID really hit. And Gilbert, Arizona, um, when we met with them early in 2020, actually early in 2020, I think, very early, like January, they were a town of 250,000 people and they were doubling, doubling their population every 10 years. They were, according to many economic measures, one of the most... Um, prosperous, healthy towns in the country, not because they had a lot of income per se, but because they were highly educated, highly employed, healthy migration patterns, um, lots of educational opportunities, good schools. And they were doing great as a town. And the mayor at the time, Mayor Daniels, uh, came in to get a briefing with us. GoDaddy has a big presence um, in her backyard. And so she took the meeting and we were trying to figure out just how do we make this data important to someone like Mayor Daniels? And so she said she'd give us some feedback. When we told her that she had 36,000 micro businesses in her city, um, that's when everything changed for her because 36,000 micro businesses is a big number. And and from, from that point on the conversation, she started rattling off all these people that she knew, but she hadn't really thought about who these micro businesses. And what's important is she's coming from a town that's doing really, really well. But clearly the people in that town really loved having a side gig because it was just important who they were, what their identity was. You have conversations like that with Mayor Daniels or you have conversations with the mayor of Chicago where her focus when COVID hit, well, she was thinking very hard about the south side of Chicago where the economy was a little bit less resilient than in other parts of Chicago. And how do I save those small businesses there? It might otherwise be in jeopardy because it's a part of our a part of her community that economically wasn't doing very well. So my lesson one that I've learned is micro businesses aren't about helping a certain segment of your of your population. It's about helping all segments, all demographics of your population. And they can be helpful in a myriad of ways. When we went and met with the mayor of Boise, Idaho, her filter, her lens for thinking about micro businesses 
was, hey, the cost of living in Boise has gone up so high. I don't want to force out people who have been here for a long period of time simply because they can't afford it already. I want them to be able to stay. And microbusinesses might be able to support giving them that extra two or $300 a month to deal with the rise in the cost of living that's happening in Boise. So venture forward and go daddy, how can you help me get more um, microbusinesses here? So think about all demographics and then to be really clear on what's the problem you're trying to solve with microbusinesses. Cities come at this from very certain problem statements or very certain opportunity statements. Um, and then I'd also say that if you look at the, the top challenges by my, that microbusiness, everyday entrepreneurs will tell you they have, and this has been consistent across all of the surveying that we've done, those top three include they want more training, more learning, upskilling, um, access to capital, um, and they want um, uh, technical help. So the top three are things that their local communities are really ripe to be able to help provide them. When it comes to upscaling, um, they would much rather they would much rather be learn from each other than they would from a company like GoDaddy. We would love to help them anytime that they want, and they they know where to reach us. But they really love to learn from each other. And city leaders are in a great position to try and form those networks within their cities. And so we work with a lot of cities on how exactly do that? What's the coalitions of, of NGOs and policymakers and city leaders to create that kind of ecosystem within a city where micro businesses can be in touch with each other and learn? And then how do you deliver the kinds of skills training into that ecosystem that these micro business owners will just completely eat up and will greatly support their business? We have such a strong ecosystem and infrastructure around supporting small businesses. But we don't have something similar for micro businesses, and they really do need different things. Um, just a quick antidote for you. I was in Long Beach um, talking to some economic development officials about a year ago. And um, I think the head of economic development, and no, it wasn't him. One of the economic development officials started, started saying that he had created a jobs fair in his community, really wanting to reach out to this population and support them. And um, my answer in the friendliest way possible was these people aren't looking for jobs. That's not how they think about their micro business. They think about their micro businesses as, as following their passion, as starting something new. They still need help, but they're not going to be attracted to something called a jobs fair. Um, it's like that woman making candles. She would never go to a jobs fair. And then another question I got was, well, how do you think about um, micro business verticals like services or manufacturing or restaurants? I'm like, <laughs> I don't think micro business entrepreneurs think of themselves in verticals either. Again, they're just doing something they'd love to be able to do. So to cities, what do we suggest? One, really understand what you're trying to solve micro businesses. Two, create that kind of ecosystem and infrastructure where you can easily engage them. Three, give them the kinds of skills that, that they want from their very own community. Um, and four, realize that they're very different than small businesses and educate yourself on how they're different. It, it sounds like uh, though they're different, they have some needs that maybe are somewhat similar in, in, in that they're like uh, to like something like an 8A type program that folks might be uh, familiar with, where there's kind of programs that help with that, like try to find access to capital or try to like maybe maybe provide training, uh, that, that, that sort of thing. And uh, I wonder if one, uh, like do, do are there a lot of communities out there that have programs that try to give similar types of support? even if maybe they're targeted differently for, for those needs. And two, then if they do exist, do like folks even know, like, uh, you know, people probably know about the small business administration, but I imagine like if you're in your city maybe you don't know that, Hey, there's this thing I could be talking to somebody about to get a little help here in the community. Um, yes, yes. And yes. So um, we have had a lot of trial and error on this at, at GoDaddy as well, because something that we pride ourselves doing really well is, is not just selling great products, but also supporting our customers outside of that selling cycle with things like support and training and so on. And so we have a great library online, frankly, of videos that you can watch anytime that you want on how to do certain things that we think is very applicable to micro business and every entrepreneur. But you know what? The, the, the passive streaming video approach to learning just isn't all that effective. Um, and that's just an example of a lot of ways trying to pass on skills 
to a hungry audience can be effective or not effective. Um, I was doing a series of interviews a couple months ago, and it was like a lightning round with a lot of um, reporters in different parts of the country. And they all were asking me at the end of the interviews the same question. Um, you know, what what's next for GoDaddy in terms of helping the everyday entrepreneur? And, and I said, it's really, I don't think the everyday entrepreneur wants all this continued help from GoDaddy outside of our great products. I think what they really want is they want to be more connected to the entrepreneurs that are across the street from them, across the city from them, um, or even a couple of cities away from them. And that's who they're going to learn the best from. And that's who they're going to find common ground with. And so with cities, they oftentimes want to be at the center of the training. They want to be the one offering the training. In some cases, that is useful. In other cases, it's setting up the infrastructure so that micro business entrepreneurs can talk and work with each other. It's all allowing them to network with each other. It's it's meeting places, it's online forums. It is, it is content you can go grab online and then share with other people. Um, it's It's not hard to figure out the kinds of content everyday entrepreneurs need to be successful. It's much trickier to figure out where it's easiest for them to get it and what's the best way for them to absorb and digest it. And that's frankly where we spend a lot of time working with cities. As they're thinking about what sounds like basically creating spaces for folks to, to interact with each other, um, there is maybe some hurdles for them to overcome just by nature of them being like a city government. Right. Depending on the communities you're trying to get into, there could be more or less trust in institutions, which might lead to like a change in engagement um, and maybe just like how they view government services overall. Um, what, what advice would you give to like officials trying to overcome those sorts of views? Um, it's a really great question because it, it, it raises it raises a really important point we've been seeing. Sorry, it raises its surfaces. And uh, something we've been seeing in the data over the last six months that we hadn't seen before. And that's that people starting micro businesses post COVID are way more serious about them than they were before COVID. We ask a question in some of our surveys around the ambitions, how big do they want them to be? And this last round, um, 14% had aspirations for their micro business to be a unicorn, which is a with a valuation of a billion dollars. Now, 14% of all micro businesses are not gonna become a unicorn. But if you have the ambitions to become a unicorn, another 14% said they wanted them to be a mid-sized business. So if, if you're the candle maker um, from Omaha, Nebraska, and you're the person who wants, who believes that your micro business can be a unicorn, on day one, two, and three, your actions may look kind of similar to each other. But I bet not too many days after that, your actions in starting your business are going to begin to look very different. And you're going to start thinking about, wow, maybe I should have an EIN. Maybe I should start thinking about hiring people. Maybe I should start thinking about having a better profile in my local community if I'm going to become that big. Like, You just go on a very different kind of trajectory which means that your relationship with your community and your government suddenly becomes on your radar screen. Whereas the woman from Omaha, Nebraska, the candle maker, that was probably nowhere on her radar screen whatsoever as being important um, or something that she ever really wanted to deal with. So we're now dealing with, to a large degree, a very different class of everyday entrepreneurs since COVID. And they are going to be looking to their cities in ways that previous everyday entrepreneurs did not. So our message to cities is get ready because now they're going to have expectations of you. They're going to expect that you understand um, why what they're doing is important, that why what they're doing is going to be significant and the kinds of helps and services they need from you. Um, and that's going to become one of their priorities in terms of how they feel about their local government. So I can't speak to the amount of trust people have in government or don't, but it seems to me that trust is oftentimes about being able to deliver on what you said you're going to deliver on. If you have an elected official who is talking about creating a solid, broad-based, inclusive economy in her city, microbusinesses had better be part of that plan. And if it's part of that plan, um, she should have a good idea of who they are, where they are, what they're doing, and how they're different. Your comment about expectations is an apt one. Something we've talked about on this podcast a number of times with government services is this uh, concept of friction 
which is a thing that's been studied a whole bunch in political science, which often confirms a thing that you would maybe take for granted, which is that if a service is hard to get access to, like a lot of steps, uh, it's less likely that someone will actually go through all of the steps to get to that service at the end. Like there's folks that kind of fall off at different at different stages. And I imagine that that's a thing that maybe happens with programs in this space too, like, like any other service. Is that something y'all have, have seen? And if so, are there any like, are there any successful methods for reducing that friction for programs for micro businesses that y'all have? I think any program that is built by one for many to absorb is, is maybe always run the risk of, of breaking that breaking expectations because it's very hard to do one thing and make it applicable to a many, especially in today's world. Um, you know, I get, I, I'll even have Godot to be part of that one. We have really great content uh, online to help people deal with a lot of very current issues around the micro business, but that content isn't always accessible to everybody who might need it. It may not be in the right place or it may not use the right kind of, of language. It may not, it, it just may not work for their ears or how they digest information. And so that may miss their expectations. I, I, think the the best way around it is to really set up the ability for these entrepreneurs to work with each other and to give them the tools to be able to do that and the space to be able to do that because people will find people who will help people will find people who they will form their own communities um, and they will engage with those communities and they will create their own content and it's amazing to watch it happen um so I think you need both, frankly. I think you need the experts who might have a really great field of view like we do on what's happening and what's coming down the pike for, for everyday entrepreneurs, the trends in commerce, for example, um, the ability to talk to you about how to get your products on the eBay, the Pinterest, the Etsy, the Amazon, on marketplaces all at once. Like Those are great things for someone like GoDaddy to be able to talk about how to do it and, and where to go and what tools you need. But there's a million other questions that we couldn't always foresee or always know the answer to. And that's why creating these networks and these communities are so important for us to do or we're not in the middle of it. And we think that cities are a great place for that to happen because people have a natural affinity to their city. They have a natural affinity to where they live. They're going to walk outside their homes and their offices and they're going to talk to other people. And that's where really wonderful and amazing and powerful information and sharing happens. I think something I'm also wondering about there is, uh, so for example, in, in, in some communities, there are um, like a part of the local government is maybe there for as like a resource for folks that are starting small businesses. Maybe it's like helping them with permits, helping them with like small business administration loans, that sort of thing. Uh, I think maybe something I'm wondering is like, do, does there need to be something like that also for micro businesses or are they well served with like the existing infrastructure? I would... I would applaud and love for that to see that to happen. Um, I would applaud it even more if someone took built a model that was highly flexible to learn what works best for micro businesses. Um, we're doing some work with with Las Vegas, uh, this the city and larger area around Las Vegas, and Las Vegas. Um, there, the density of micro businesses in Las Vegas for a metro of that size is two point five times the average. Las Vegas has over 300,000 micro businesses in it. And um, this was also a city that had 30% unemployment, if I have my facts right, um, during the depths of COVID. And a lot of these micro businesses were started during then. And they have, I, I met uh, two months ago about 40 business leaders from the Las Vegas area. And I gotta tell you, they, they're like game on when it comes on, no pun intended, they're like game on when it comes to supporting there are small micro businesses completely separate of the strip and the entertainment that goes on there. But they were so in tune with what was happening with their economy outside of the strip and the hotels and how many people were relying on that and starting these businesses and, and how powerful it could be. And, and they on their own broached the idea of starting something equivalent to the Chamber of Commerce before micro businesses. And to their great credit, they realized, but we can't do a chamber of commerce for a chamber of like micro businesses because you it's just it's not a parallel um it's like an analog and a digital in some ways so they're trying to wrestle with this very question and frankly they're the best people best people to wrestle with it because they're so on top of what's happening with their community i think they'll remain really flexible with, with whatever model they come up with but they're trying to do this exact 
same thing because they realize how much a part of their economy is tied to micro businesses and how many people in a rapidly growing city are wanting to start these micro businesses and how important it is to their economy. Uh, given that I imagine a fair bit of this activity happens through the internet, uh, I guess in, in particular for for businesses that have these micro businesses that have been started in the wake of COVID, I would imagine there's probably some amount of correlation between you know access to broadband in an area and mm-hmm. the ability for micro businesses to happen and thrive. Uh, is this something you've seen bore out in the data that y'all have? When we um, when we first started, when we first raised the idea of trying to measure the impact of micro businesses, um, we went out and we talked to a lot of academics about how we might do that. <clears throat> and the vast majority of them said, oh, it's already been done. All you have to do is look at broadband data. Like, and if you understand broadband data, you'll understand everything you need to know about about micro business activity because where there is broadband the assumption was there would be micro businesses but that is not true um the data does not actually bear that out um if any of us have either been in schools or have kids lately or have kids in the schools now you'll know that just because um some school gets a donation of 100 ipads doesn't mean that those ipads will immediately be successful and used properly it takes training it takes curriculum it takes someone to manage those iPads. It takes someone helping explain them to the students. It takes a lot of work to make just that bit of technology something that's powerful. Um, the second thing is about broadband is it, it is a technology. It is very powerful. And most micro businesses would not occur without it. But it doesn't mean that there's actual engagement with the technology. It just means that it's there. And um, as you as you heard, as Go back to the, the candle maker from Omaha, Nebraska. Like she had broadband. Um, that wasn't her problem. She had a lot of problems on top of that. So yeah, technology is really important. I don't mean to minimize it, but way too often we hear from policymakers and from even from principals of schools and school administrators to say, if we could just get broadband in here or if we can get everybody a laptop, um, our problems will be solved. That's not the case. And that's why we hear again and again from our everyday entrepreneurs that in their top three concerns, one of them is I want to continue to learn. Like this stuff is changing every day and I need to get better at what I do. And as I grow my business, I have so many firsts that are happening every day, every month, every quarter, every year. And I need to learn how to apply this technology so I can have more firsts. And that's why broadband um, is not the end all be all important, but it's not what actually solves the problem. Broadband access, it's like a tool that you maybe need early on. And if you have it, great. But ultimately, like the indicator of success is what comes after. Is is that kind of what I'm hearing from you? Yeah, it's the engagement. I mean, and and where we where we've had a lot, we do a lot of work with academics because they're just they just have this freedom to sort of understand data in ways that you know a lot of us who have to tie it to something different don't have. And so we've done a lot of work with academics and handed them hand them the data and said, tell us what you see. And one set of academics we worked with at the University of Iowa took the microbusiness data and said, this is really an understanding, not just of business, but of technology engagement, of successful technology engagement, where technology was actually engaged with in a productive way. And they started toying around with that idea. And I thought that was a really beautiful and powerful concept, aside from everything else that we're learning, which is technology by itself is, is like steal this is like any other sort of tool but it's how you engage with it is where we get the benefit and um the fact that our data played a little role in that is a lot of fun if there's a policymaker out there listening to us having this conversation and maybe they're realizing to themselves that there's some work to do here in their community what advice would you give them as they get started and want to start exploring the problem space uh, well, first, uh, we would love to talk with you. Um, <laughs> everything, all the data we give away is, is free. Um, any advice, good advice we have for you is all free. Um, we also are starting a new program called GoDaddy Open, where we are partnering with communities to offer the upskilling and the training that we do all, all for free. Um, so we'd love to work with you. And part of what we, what we learn from those engagements is that we get to hear the kinds of challenges and opportunities that a city is facing relative to micro businesses. And it just gives us a more complete understanding of what's happening out there. So we get a lot from it too, but everything we will do for you is free. 
And if we were to get on the phone, the first thing I do is try and help them understand just what is the profile of microbusinesses in their community? How many are there? Where are they? Um, we were working with the mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, and, and he frankly was really surprised at where they were at, at a zip code level across his city, um, which we're able to show and how that's changed over the last couple of years. That's a really helpful understanding when you're thinking about urban development um, and economic development. And the second thing is, is take a look at, let's get to know who these who these entrepreneurs are. What do they care about? What affects them? Um, what are their, what are the levers that you can pull within your own community to help them? Um, is there a very specific problem or challenge you're facing? Um, a quick a quick antidote from Detroit when we're looking we're working with the officials in Detroit of what was happening there. And whenever we work with the city, we really try to understand the the problem statement, the opportunity statement that they're coming to us with, because every city has them. They didn't just call up because they were suddenly interested in microbusinesses, but they're facing something. And the folks in Detroit were, were, were talking about how in certain portions of the city of Detroit, they did not want those people to leave those neighborhoods. Uh, we see so often that neighborhoods that might not be doing well economically you might have cities might try and up economic them. They might try and bring in a much wealthier class in, or they might bring in chain stores or chain restaurants. Um, Detroit wanted to avoid that at all costs because they believe the real power of Detroit was within the people who were in Detroit and the people who were in these old neighborhoods. Um, these people who really created this presence and this culture of Detroit. And they wanted to find a way to make them um, more successful economically and have them stay where they were. And so their job was, we actually want to get the small businesses that are not online, we want to get them online, which was a very great, is a fantastic problem statement to have. It's like, we can help you with that because they knew where these small businesses were and we knew how to get them online. And that's a problem and opportunity statement that Boise didn't have or that Atlanta doesn't have or San Diego doesn't have. Um, and so that's the next question we get to with them is what what are we trying to solve and what's some of the challenges that we can solve now and learn to go. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us here on Civic Tech Chat. I have no doubt folks out there listening to us are going to have something to learn from the conversation and take into their day. Brian, thank you. It was a pleasure being here. And um, we look forward to talking to any of your listeners because we'll probably learn as much as, as they will in the conversation. So thanks, Ryan. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at civictechchat, visit us on the web at civictech.chat, or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.